We've got a big show ahead of you. Thanks for joining the Thomas Guide. Hugh Hewitt's joining the line, and he's going to talk about how Trump is on constitutional thin ice and could potentially be impeached. We're going to talk about the Mexico border wall. We've got Steve Moore, our FBI correspondent, to talk about the Secret Service who wouldn't take a bullet for the president. That and more alternative facts, crowd sizes, and so much more coming up. This is The Thomas Guide. Your roadmap for navigating the world. Landed. With your guide, John Thomas, political savant, world-class analyst, and culture critic. No need to Google directions. Just buckle up and enjoy the ride. This is The Thomas Guide with your host, John Thomas. Welcome back. Another episode of a Thomas Guide of the Thomas Guide. Boy, we've got a lot to cover. You know, it's one of those things where just when you think, you know, the stories have to slow down that Trump is now the president. In fact, uh, since we've last seen you, he was sworn in the day after our last episode of the Thomas Guide. Now it's no longer president elect Trump. It is President Trump. Uh, this morning I watched him get off Marine One and take his first official ride on Air Force One. Uh, it's incredible when you think how far we've come and it feels like, to me at least, it feels like it happened in a flash. It feels like he just announced his run and here he is. Um, boy, but when you think the stories are going to slow down, <laughs> it's the exact opposite. Every single day, it's hard. We, you know, you, we're uh, putting together the show for the week, and stuff that happened on Monday feels like it happened an eternity ago. Um, the Trump campaign or the Trump uh, administration, there are some words of caution that I would give to them. We're going to get into it with the alternative facts. Um, we're going to get talk about it with Hugh Hewitt, who's going to join the show. I'm sure all of you know who Hugh is. Uh, Hugh, being a member of the media, we're going to have some questions in depth for him about Trump's relationship with the media and, and how Sean Spicer has to nuance that. I'm going to go through kind of my crystal ball. Uh, I was on the Bill Handel show on KFI earlier this week on Monday, and I uh, laid out what Sean Spicer should have said about crowd sizes, and then Sean held a press conference two hours after I got off the air, and he parroted back exactly what I suggested for him to say. I don't either. He was watching me on good day LA or listening on bill handle show, or we're just, uh, he knew what the right thing to do was after he screwed up. Um, last night, ABC had a Trump's first sit down interview. Um, I believe tonight Sean Hannity is having the first cable sit down interview. I love how Fox News didn't get the the scoop for the first interview, so they say uh, it's President Trump's first cable interview. Who cares if it's on cable or satellite or broadcast? But you know, gotta spin it. How you gotta spin it? Um, so there were a couple interesting things I, I wanted to go through from that first interview. Uh, one is we're talking about. Uh, Trump claimed earlier this week that there was massive voter fraud to the tunes of several million people 
that had that not occurred, not occurred, that Trump would have won not only the Electoral College, which he won for fair and square, but he would have won the popular vote as well. The one problem with that is that there's no evidence to support that. Um, I've gone through fraud. Yes. Uh, there are people who cast ballots that uh, illegally. Is it on a massive scale enough to flip the popular vote? No, I would be very surprised if that were the case. Could the voter sis- voting system be tightened up and should it be tightened up? Yes. It's like, you know, why don't we request uh, identification to vote? I remember uh, this last cycle, I, I, uh, I went to vote in downtown LA. I think I'm the only Republican registered to vote in downtown LA. And I show up and you know, there, this is in the primary and there's the Republican, there's about seven Democrat booths and then there's one Republican booth. And I show up midday and the voters, the, vo- uh, the poll workers look at me and you're, say, you're finally arrived. You're the one, <laughs> you're the first Republican all day. Uh, but I was standing behind a Democratic voter uh, and she was checking in and uh, she brought out her driver's license and she said, my name is such and such and here's my ID. And the poll worker said to her, oh, honey, we don't, we don't need your ID. And she l- said, what? And she looked at me like, well, if you don't look at my ID, then anyone can vote. And that's the problem. Uh, but last night, uh, ABC's David Muir pushed back against uh, Trump on these voter fraud claims. I believe we've, well, we don't have a clip. So, uh, but, but basically, here's how the exchange worked. Uh, Muir said, with ABC, said, uh, you say you're going to launch an investigation into voter fraud. Trump says, sure, done. Uh, then ABC, Muir says, what you've presented so far has been debunked. It's been called false. And then Trump said, no, it hasn't. Take a look at the Pew report. And then ABC's Muir says, I called the author of the Pew report last night. He told me they found no evidence of voter fraud, to which Trump responded, really? Then why did he write the report? Uh, he said, and then, uh, and then the reporter said, he said, no evidence of voter fraud. Um, and then Trump said, excuse me, uh, why did he write the report? Look at the Pew report. Then he's groveling again. You know, I always talk about reporters that grovel when they want to write something you want to hear, but not necessarily millions of people want to hear or have to hear. That didn't make sense to me uh, when he said that. Uh, and earlier in the week, the reason he's doing this is Trump tweeted this. He said, I'll, I'll be asking for a major investigation into voter fraud, including those registered to vote in two states, those who are illegal, and even those registered to vote who are dead. Uh, depending on the b- results, we will strengthen up voting procedures. Now, I have no problem with the president of the United States looking to tighten up our voting procedures, just like I talked about with the voter ID. That seems to make common sense. Uh, What I do have a problem with is Trump making these claims that he would have won uh, when, in fact, uh, he did win. Get over it. Stop talking about the popular vote. You didn't win the popular vote. It's who cares? He has to stop falling for these issues because he shifts the cycle away from what he should be talking about, which is, uh, jobs in the economy. Uh, when will he learn? I don't think he ever will learn. Um, let's go to the, the next, and I think we do have a clip on this, um, that uh, um, we, in the, in the interview, uh, 
um, Trump admits uh, that he thinks waterboarding works. And that's interesting, but it's it's more interesting uh, about the exchange and what he'll actually do about waterboarding. Can we roll the clip? debates that you would bring back waterboarding yeah. and a hell of a lot worse. I would words. do what I would do. I want to keep our country safe. I want to keep our country safe. What does that when mean? When they're shooting, when they're chopping off the heads of our people and other people, when they're chopping off the heads of people because they happen to be a Christian in the Middle East, when ISIS is doing things that nobody has ever heard of since medieval times, would I feel strongly about waterboarding? As far as I'm concerned, we have to fight fire with fire. Now, with that being said, I'm going with General Mattis. I'm going with my secretary because I think Pompeo is going to be phenomenal. I'm going to go with what they say. But I have spoken as recently as 24 hours ago with people at the highest level of intelligence, and I asked them the question, does it work? Does torture work? And the answer was yes, absolutely. Here's what's fascinating about that exchange. Uh, is that Trump said, well, I think we got to fight fire with fire and waterboarding absolutely definitively works. And I've talked to senior people uh, in intelligence that says it works. I also will completely defer to my cabinet, um, Defense Secretary Pompeo as well. Um, that was a fascinating exchange. And here's what was really going on, I believe. Trump has said in the in, in past circumstances uh, during the primary that he would waterboard the hell out of them and all of that. And so Trump doesn't want to ever admit that he was wrong in some, saying something before. And so what he's done here is he's justified that he was not incorrect, that there are intelligence people that agree with his position and that we have to be tough on these terrorists. But then he made that transition of saying, but I hired great people and I'm going to let them do their job. So he tried to to take the current position that he knows he wants to hold because you've heard the Secretary of Defense, uh, uh, Mad Dog Mattis, say that torture doesn't work because you get the guys to talk, but they'll say anything and you can't rely upon the intelligence that they provide. Uh, so that's what we saw there. And the media freaked out saying, I don't, you know, oh, he's going to waterboard people, but he's not. No, it's clear he's going to take the advice of the experts. He's just covering his tracks because, again, Donald Trump can never admit that he's wrong. He can never admit that something he did wasn't the greatest or the best. Uh, that's just his personality. And that was his uh, purposeful way of delivering that message. And that's what we saw there. Another significant thing happened this week where Trump said that uh, that construction of the border wall uh, will begin in months. Um, and then uh, regarding who's paying for it, uh, he said, quote, ultimately it will come out of what's happening with Mexico and we will be in a in a form reimbursed by Mexico, which I've always said. Um, and during the interview, uh, Trump said that Mexico would pay the U.S. back, quote, 100 percent, to which Mexican, the Mexican president, uh, uh, Enrique Peña Nieto, said, absolutely not. We're not going to pay for that wall. Um, and he canceled his meeting with Trump in Washington this week. Um, Nieto says he called it off. Trump says it was a mutual decision. 
Uh, yeah, it probably was. Uh, you know, Nianto <laughs> told Trump, I'm not going to meet. And Trump said, good, I didn't want you to meet anyway. <laughs> it's mutual. You know, um, the, the issue here is what do you expect a Mexican, pre- Mexican president to say? Of course he can't meet with Trump. Of course, uh, you know, he's got to stand up for his citizen citizenry. One thing I infuriated me a little bit about the the Mexican uh, president's remarks earlier this week was that he said uh, that President Trump needs to treat Mexicans with the dignity and respect they deserve as it relates to why he shouldn't build a wall. I'm trying to understand this. Uh, let me get this straight. The president of Mexico is telling the president of the United States to ignore the laws of the United States and ignore immigration laws. That doesn't make any sense. Um, It's not about dignity. It's about enforcement and respect of laws. Uh, But now this thing is 100% purely political. And what Trump has just said today in a speech in Pennsylvania is that if he has to, to get Mexico to pay for the wall, he has leverage. And what he's going to do is potentially charge a 20% tax on Mexican uh, imports to the U.S. That's how he does it. Look, uh, so whether or not Mexico wants to or not, they're going to have to pay that tax. I suspect what he's doing right now, it's called anchoring, where you take a a position far out, a 20% position, knowing that you may settle on a 5%. Uh, I think that's where he's going. Uh, But it's interesting, this standoff. Um, I think it's going to continue to work. Um, and Trump, uh, I do believe that he'll get Mexico to pay for the wall, but it'll be interesting how, and it's not going to be a lump sum, it's tariff that's over time. And then it'll be fascinating to see if they can fund a bond, uh, based upon the anticipated tariff income over a decade's period of time. That, that'll be fascinating to watch that whole thing play out. Uh, and then so that happened today, and what you're likely, another John Crystal Ball moment, is what you're going to see is all the Latino politicians from California and probably Texas uh, start throwing rocks at President Trump, uh, saying they're, you know, it's probably like a, you know, Mexican Lives Matter movement is what they're going to try to do. Ugh, boy, never, never a dull moment. So you know who's been in the news? Uh, Kellyanne Conway has been in the news. She... Uh, did it was if you haven't seen it we're going to play a clip but go watch the whole interview on online she did an interview with uh, on meet the press with chuck todd where she talked about alternative facts are not uh facts or, or alternative facts and she got in this big exchange we've got a clip can we roll the video clip did not answer the question i did you, answer no your you question. did not you did yes, not answer did. the question of why the president asked the White House press secretary to come out in front of the podium for the first time and utter a falsehood. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office no, on day don't one. Be so, don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains alternative that facts? there's... Alternative facts, four of the five facts he uttered. The hey, one Chuck, thing he why, got hey, right Chuck. was Zeke Miller. Four of the five facts he uttered were just not true. 
look, alternative facts are not facts. Uh, so Chuck was freaking out about that. Here's what happened in that alternative facts discussion. It was a slip of the tongue. She didn't mean to say alternative facts as a, uh, as a term. What she meant to say is an alternative perspective. Now, that's still fudging the truth, but there's a difference between an opinion and a fact. And so I guarantee you, if she could redo that moment, uh, she would have said alternative opinion or alternative perspective. And here's, here's the, the thing. I mean, we, we played that clip. You can see it was hostile. But the interview was uh, eight to ten minutes long, and Chuck Todd was grilling her on everything from crowd size to that whole alternative fact situation. I mean, it's just a whole host of things. And so she was on the defensive from minute one. And it's, it's hard to think on your feet for that long doing a remote television hit. And if you've ever if you've ever been around somebody who's done a remote television hit, let me just explain to you how that works. It's very difficult. Uh, you have a, a piece in your ear, and that, that earpiece is very tinny. It does not sound like I sound like here. Uh, it doesn't sound like what you see on TV. It's tinny. It's raspy. Some uh, Sometimes the earpiece doesn't fit properly in your ear and wants to pop out, isn't a good fit. So, so you have a little bit of technical challenges to begin with. Then you're looking into a camera. Oftentimes it's just a black hole. You're looking into a black hole. Okay, so you can't see what's going on on screen. You can't see Chuck Todd's expressions. Then on top of that, sometimes there's a monitor. Could be below, could be above, where you can see a feed of the show that's anywhere delayed from three to 10 seconds delayed. So what you're hearing in your earpiece, you're looking into the black hole, you're glancing at the monitor, there's all of these inputs, it's, it's tricky. Uh, it's very, very tricky. So the medium is tricky to begin with. Uh, that's why a lot of people prefer to do it uh, in person because it's just a lot easier to, to manage that dynamic. So she's dealing with this for eight to 10 minutes. She made a slip of the tongue. And then here's what's fascinating about the media uh, is every time Trump or a Trump spokesperson speaks, the media feels the need now to provide the rebuttal. Rather than reporting what happened and what was said, they literally have to rebut every claim that the Trump administration makes. Do you remember that with Barack Obama or George Bush? No. The media has now become an activist arm, basically, of the Democratic Party. That's what we're seeing. And it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult dynamic. I can't wait to hear what Hugh Hewitt has to say about it because uh, if you not so much are at war with the media, but if you can't get your message out, um, that will undermine your ability to persuade the American public opinion that'll kill you in the midterms potentially and then uh, prevent you from, from being reelected. Uh, we've got another, uh, so just real quick, uh, <laughs> this is funny. So there's a, there's a hashtag uh, that uh, is hashtag alternative facts and Twitter went wild about uh, Kellyanne Conway's alternative facts. So I'm just going to read you a few of these. Oh boy, these are good. Uh <laughs> One says, uh, this guy, Our Revolution, said George Orwell had something to say about alternative facts. Um, 
Then um, another one was white people invented rap. Hashtag alternative facts. <laughs> uh, Another one was, uh, now I'm waiting for students to uh, to start arguing their exam answers aren't wrong, but rather just hashtag alternative facts. <laughs> um, another one is, uh, this is my very favorite one. Officer, I'm not drunk. I'm alternative sober, hashtag alternative facts. <laughs> That's from Kyle, Humber, uh, Kyle Humble. All right. You can see part of, actually... Twitter is great when they lock on to things, and I'm sure that uh, Twitter will, uh, Donald Trump and the administration will continue to provide plenty of Twitter fodder. We've got another interesting clip. You may not have known this, but in a video surfaced from 1998 where Kellyanne Conway tried being a stand up comedian. Do we have the clip? Newt left for Georgia on the midnight train. House Republicans. Made no gains. Lead story now is Saddam Hussein. And I don't know nothing about that. But they'll still invite me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm glad she stuck to polling and not, not that. <laughs> Oh, goodness. That is really fascinating. Um, <laughs> let's let's move along. <laughs> uh, Sean Spicer, who's the White House press secretary, uh, really stepped in it on Saturday when he held a press conference about uh, uh, crowd size at the inauguration. And while... They shouldn't have been talking at all about crowd size. They shouldn't have had the conversation. It's silly. It is what it is. Who cares? Donald Trump won. That's it. But of course, Donald Trump can't help himself but say that he had the biggest crowd, that he had the best crowd, the greatest crowd, the hugest crowd. Uh, so he instructed Sean Spicer to go out there and defend his honor by saying definitively, that uh, Trump had the biggest crowd ever at an inauguration, period. That's a fact. Whoops. Well, the problem is the pictures tell a different story. It's very clear that Barack Obama in 2008 had a bigger crowd size. And is that any surprise? Barack Obama was a rock star in terms of public opinion. Barack Obama... Part of his coalition that elected him were young people, crazy young people that have no job, that could take a weekend off and go to the inauguration. Uh, Chuck Todd actually even explained that if you look at the D.C. area, the D.C. area is more and more liberal. And so people, a lot of Democrats, they can migrate in from the D.C. area to attend the inauguration. It's not a surprise. But of course, he screwed it up, made a big mistake. And we're going to get into uh, my take and another John's crystal ball moment, uh, what I said on Good Day LA. But before we get into that, there's, a, there's an interesting story. The Washington Post did a YouGov story or YouGov poll where they asked voters to compare uh, inauguration crowds with Obama. And here's basically what happened. Obama in 2009. Um, 
the 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 survey was uh, about a week ago. It surveyed thir- about thirteen hundred American adults. So uh, American adults, it's not a reflective. There's lots of methodological flaws with it because it doesn't reflect um, likely voter turnout or they don't check voter registration, anything like that. But it's let's just take it for what it is. Uh, what they did is they showed a that you can see it behind me. They showed a picture uh, A and picture B. Uh, uh, the bottom one is B, and they'd say uh, which photo has more people. Um, and most people would correctly identify which photo had more people. The uh, the top one did. But then uh, then they asked uh, a second half of people um, that uh, um, people who identified as Trump supporters beforehand, which photo had more people. And... Uh, of supporters that said the bottom picture had more people uh, were were Trump people. Uh, We're only like two or three percent were Clinton voters that said the bottom portion had more people. And so here's here's the interesting question. Why were these Trump supporters lying to the pollster about which photo showed more pictures or more people? And the best way to explain it is it's just partisanship, that it was a big story about uh, crowd size. And this survey was taken after that. And there's just clearly a lot of Trump people that don't want to accept the fact that there clearly were more people for Barack Obama than Donald Trump, that there was some kind of mistruth, that there was a liberal bias or, you know, so, uh, uh you know, alternative facts, perhaps. It's fascinating. But here's what I would say. As the Washington Post freaked out about this and liberals freaked out about it, this is actually a relatively 15%. It's relatively small that are liars in the scheme of things. When we do, when we do political polls, I could ask somebody, are you more or less likely to vote for a candidate knowing that, um, that he's, uh, he or she uh, it stands for puppies, kittens, and babies, and we'll give everybody, for, you know, we'll we'll make sure bad guys stay behind bars. Just read them a litany of positive, 100% positive, something no one could be against. I'm going to get 10 or 20% of respondents saying they are less likely to vote for my guy knowing all that positive information, okay? There's just, there's there's a portion of every response, uh, um, portion of every um, response in a survey that is going to disagree, they're just going to say the wrong thing. Even when you say the sky is blue, they're going to go, no, nah, I think it's black. So you throw partisanship on top of that, and that's what you get. All right, this is the fun part. Uh, I was on Good Day LA Monday morning uh, at uh, about 7.30 in the morning. Uh, Sean Spicer had his press conference where he stepped in it about crowd size the Saturday before. And so... Uh, I basically laid out what Sean Spicer should have said uh, if he did have to talk about crowd size. And this is before Sean had his press conference in the afternoon. Can we go ahead and roll a clip? He should have focused on our slightly different facts that are truthful. For instance, the Nielsen ratings. It was Nielsen, actually, he outperformed Barack Obama in 2012. He outperformed Bill Clinton. He outperformed George W. Bush. Focus on those facts and say, yeah, they might have less crowds. That's because our viewers in America don't have the money because they're hurt so economically to travel to Washington. Well, you know, still no, watching. If, if I'm the spokesperson, 
I say, look, sir, this is Washington, D.C. This is a totally Democratic town surrounded by Democratic counties yes. in Virginia and Maryland. So, of course, Democrats will turn right. out for the march and not for him. And they're but, the but, why, but why even focus on that? Well, I well just, that's and I understand you're, you're, saying, you're, you're saying, okay, spin it. Very, very, very well done, by Thank the way. You. Thank you. But yeah. why even bother? Yeah, and that's true. And that's just Donald Trump's personality is you can't tell him that he has small hands. He's hand going to punch it's back. The, it is. Yeah, it just any time you insult him, he has to push back. And he can't ever accept that something, he might have been outdone in some category. But I, I think so there you have it. That's my take. He should have said, what about the ratings I beat? I beat everybody in the ratings, which is true. That's very true. Shift the conversation away from the physical crowd size and then say people who are watching at home, the reason they didn't attend was because they couldn't afford to because Barack Obama so badly damaged them economically that they couldn't afford to attend. And here's what Sean Spicer said about two hours uh, after I made that statement on Good Day LA. Stand by your statement that that was the most watched inaugural I think, address in Sure, country. it was the most watched inaugural. When you look at, look, you look at just the one network alone got 16.9 million people online. Another couple of the networks, there were tens of million people that watched that online. Never mind the, the, the audience that was here, 31 million people watched it on television. Combine that with the tens of millions of people that watched it online on a device. There's, it's unquestionable. I don't, I don't. And I don't see any numbers that, that dispute that. When you add up attendance, viewership, or total audience in terms of tablets, phones, uh, on television, I'd love to see any information that proves, me, proves that otherwise. John's crystal ball. When you're right, you're right. <laughs> well played, John. I just wish uh, you had consulted me before Saturday and Trump told you to go out there and defend the issue no matter what. Um, and just disagree because that's the art of communication is when the facts aren't necessarily on your side, you answer the question you want to answer or you take a different, slightly different perspective while being truthful uh, about it. Um, all right. We, we got our guest in line. Oh, we've got my buddy Steve Moore. Steve, are you on the line? Yes, I am. How hey. are you? Thanks for joining us. I'm, I'm well. Uh, Steve Moore, uh, our audience knows who you are from when you joined us last time, but 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 basically, in case you don't, uh, you can. Steve is a former uh, FBI agent, uh, international. I like to think you're an expert on not just you know national security, but also uh, international relations. Um, and uh, uh, you can obviously you can be found on CNN. I feel like Steve, you're on CNN once or twice a week. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, uh, and I, I like to think I, I'm knowledgeable. I, I hope I'm getting close <laughs> to expert, but I'm knowledgeable. You are. I, I Steve, I feel like you and I, uh, we see each other in the green room at CNN all the time. Uh, we do a lot of international CNN, and, you know, every time I, I see in the green room, it, it feels like, you know, we're, we're they're trying to use us as punching bags, and I, it's it's – Almost like when I step onto that stage sometime, and I love the hosts there. They're so great, and I love the producers. But they're living in an alternative reality uh, as it relates to international relations. Uh, do you remember, Steve, and this is just, uh, this was, bef I want to say, right after the election, that when Obama was causing trouble with Israel, uh, that the frame of the show was that Obama 
was loved by Israel, that he's done so much for Israel. And I just didn't sit there and scratch my head. And now fast forward to how Israel's reacting to President Trump. I mean, it's like a love fest, right? Yeah, uh, and I'm, you're cutting out a little bit, so I'm having a little trouble hearing that. Um, so could you repeat the question real sure. quick? Sure. Uh, can you hear me better now? Is that a little clearer? A little clearer. I, it's just cutting out. I, my, Sorry. No no problem at all. So, so basically, to, to summarize what I, I said was at CNN, especially CNN International, uh, they sometimes have a distorted reality of, America's relationship with other countries, particularly, do you remember when Obama was uh, Obama was uh, messing with Israel right right a few weeks ago? Uh, they were talking about how Obama's relationship with Israel was uh, stellar, and now you look at how Israel is embracing Trump. I just don't think anyone could claim that Obama had a. Oh, oh I think did we lose him? Oh. Did he think he just had a bad connection? Huh. Say la vie. Uh, he'll come back. Well, uh, let's let's go through a couple stories in the meantime. All right. Well, that's live. Uh, oh, we got him back. Great. Hey, Steve. Can you can you hear me a little bit better now? Yeah, I hope so. It cut out. Uh, but yeah, I was I was listening to what you were saying, uh, what I could what I could pick up. And, you know, I do think there's a, uh, a misperception. I, I think that a lot of people don't understand what America is like and America's perception of the rest of the world as opposed to their own country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I do think that that's that's right. Um, and, you know, I did. Uh, can you still hear me, Steve, or are we? All right. Yes, I can. Okay, perfect. I can hear you. Perfect. Uh, I also do. I, I did uh, some international hits on a French French television and Sky News and uh, TRT World last night, and they couldn't understand for the life of them what a border wall could possibly do. I mean, it wasn't just like they disagreed with a border wall, <laughs> but they couldn't well, recognize I, I what benefits that would bring. Yeah, uh, it's. I think the issue there is that uh, they don't understand how. Uh, I, mean, I don't think that there's a, a as much an understanding or a belief in the uniqueness of each of the individual countries in Europe. Uh, they seem to be willing to uh, sign on to programs and treaties, which uh, which tend to make them more. Uh, more like American states yeah. than the United States and, as a whole. And, and why do you think that is? Is that have anything to do with military power? Like, well, what, do you, what do you think that's about? Uh, well, I think it's probably about uh, just the cultures. I mean, America has been uh, separated by two huge oceans from all but two countries. Um, and I think that the, because they have such porous borders and it's just so permeable, that they don't understand our concept of na of nationhood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Steve, there was a story this week uh, that there was a, a Secret Service agent uh, uh, that posted online that said uh, she would not take a bullet to protect Trump. Uh, what do you make of that? I, I make that she's made a bad career choice. <laughs> uh, she... 
that's, I mean, that's that, like I, a doctor well, saying I I won't do CPR on certain people. Right, right. Uh, what I mean, that is is a go, hate go ahead. speech. Yeah, I I no, besides the stupidity of it. I mean, obviously, that how dumb do you have to be? Uh, is that is that ever a conversation you think that occurs in the Secret Service where they give better coverage to a president that they more politically align with? I, you know, I've, I've worked with Secret Service agents. Obviously, being FBI, I wasn't in their agency. But any talk about who you would and would not take a bullet for is discussed only in the most absurd, joking terms. Um, there is no – the culture of the, of the Secret Service abhors that kind of mentality, and I can't imagine how this person got through training. Yeah, that's uh, that's shocking. In fact, uh, the Secret Service, I believe, on the campaign trail uh, in the in the primary, you, they've they had to pull Trump aside for a hypothetical threat several times, if you recall, on stage. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, this is just ludicrous, I, yeah. and I don't know, you know, what they're going to do with it. What, what what do you think? Just shifting topics uh, quickly and, and along the security line. Trump's now saying he's absolutely going to build this wall. He's going to get started in, in, in two months. From a security standpoint, obviously you can't build a wall across the entire southern border. It's impossible. What does that wall look like? If you were to, if somebody said, here, Steve Moore, you're in charge of securing the border, what, what would you do? Well, here's, here's my thought on, on a border wall. And uh, the, the issue is simply that... If there is no consequence for coming to the United States illegally and getting caught, then it doesn't matter how big the wall is. People will do everything they can to get around it. Um, it, it it's the same way if we legalized burglary, there would not be enough devices uh, that we could buy for our homes to keep them burglar proof. So while the border wall is. Uh, is a step in that direction until we start causing, I mean, literally deporting people who are caught uh, and deporting criminals, then it, the, the wall is moot. Mm-hmm. Well, last time I checked, it is, we do have laws on the books. So, it, it, you know, to that degree, it's a matter of enforcement. Um, so you, is it possible that we start seeing Trump with his U- U.S. attorneys and whatnot picking fights with, you know, city, sanctuary city by sanctuary city to basically enforce the laws. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, the 14th Amendment says that federal law has precedent and the states are pretty much flaunting that. And I think that before you can, I mean, it's very obvious that the states do not have any interest in enforcing uh, federal laws or immigration laws. The the um, the concept of of sanctuary cities has to be rooted out and taken taken down, or you're basically what that is is legislative legislated anarchy. Mm-hmm. Last question. I mean, that's what caused yeah. the Civil War. That caused right. slave, you know uh, states saying that they weren't going to abide by the federal law. Yeah. Uh, la- last question for you, Steve, um, and thanks for being with us. Um, Trump said yesterday that he wanted to have safe zones um, in Syria. W- what does that look like? How do you do that? 
depends on where, I'm sorry? Uh, in Syria. In Syria? Yeah, yes, um, yesterday he, he said that, uh, that he'd like to institute safe, safe zones. How, how, how would one go about that? Well, you can't do that without troops on the ground. Right. Uh, so, and, and that would be an indication that he is not as isolationist as some people give him, uh, as some people credit him as being, because you cannot create anything safe until you have troops on the ground making it so. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, it was fascinating last night. I don't know if you caught any excerpts of that ABC interview, but I think it was really revealing where Trump uh, was asked about waterboarding, and he basically said, here's my position, but I've hired really great cabinet people, and I'm going to defer to them. And I wonder, do you think that that's going to essentially be Trump for a, a lot of his policies? Well, I, I missed that last question because the phone's cutting uh, out. It's I'm fine. Sorry, it's it's fine. I, I was just going to say— uh, so Trump said in the ABC interview that he was going to defer, whether it's waterboarding or whatnot, to his cabinet members. Do you think we're going to see that for all military recommendations? You know, I, I think the whole issue of, uh, of torture or waterboarding or anything is kind of a straw man argument because we can say all we want, that we're not going to waterboard or torture or whatever we want, but we know our allies are doing it. And by allies, I don't mean Great Britain or France or something, but... If, if you don't think that uh, that uh, Pakistan does it, if you don't think that uh, that other countries, some countries which would surprise you, if you don't think Turkey engages in that, then then you're foolish. And so when a person is uh, a terrorist suspect is apprehended overseas, they're not apprehended by FBI agents, even though the FBI agents may be in country. They're they're apprehended by the indigenous security forces of that country and are in their custody for a while. And trust me, the answers come out before we even touch those people. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, hey, Steve Moore, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, what's, what's your, is your uh, Twitter handle at Stephen Moore? Is that it? No, it's uh, G-Man uh, underscore Moore. Ah, G-Man and underscore Moore. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Steve, and enduring the cell phone connection. Um, really appreciate it. It was good talking to you. I See you, Steve. Appreciate you having me. Thanks All right, a lot, Thanks, John. bye-bye. That was So Steve was in charge of finding out who aided and abetted them while they were while they were in Santa Monica. It's scary to think that terrorists are right here. Ugh. Uh, boy, we're, we're, we've got a, a special treat uh, as our next guest. He truly needs no introduction. Uh, Hugh Hewitt is, uh, well, we've long admired Hugh uh, from the Thomas Guide. Uh, Hugh is a... A radio host, a scholar, a conservative leader. Uh, Hugh, are you on the line? I am, John, and you, you neglected to add that I began my media career at AM KFI 640. Oh, that's, uh, a, that's right. In 1989. 
That's right. In fact, uh, our friend Bill Handel said to say hello to you. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I've got lots of old friends there, John and Ken and Ron in the afternoon. But back in the day, Bill Handel, followed by uh, Dr. Laura, followed by me, followed by Bill Press on the weekends on KFI, uh, more conservative, uh, more stimulating talk. Yeah, more stimulating. Well, uh, well, we, we miss you at the at the network. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us on the show. Hugh, I, I feel like you're everywhere these days. Uh, you played a prominent role in the presidential primaries and, of course, the general election. And now I can I can rest easy when I flip on Meet the Press and I see your face. I go, phew, at least there's some voice of reason <laughs> there. Um, and and I, so I want to talk about a few things with you. First of all, uh, your, your recent... Um, it was written in Politico that you said that Trump is on constitutional thin ice uh, and that he could potentially yeah. be. Can you explain that? What does that mean? Sure. I was talking to Katie Couric on, for Yahoo News. Great interview, by the way. She's wonderful. And she asked me, what, what do you think could happen here in the future? And I said, well, if the Democrats, big if, John, if the Democrats get the House in, um, in 2018 in an off-year election, such as the Republicans took the House, from President Obama in 2010, Democrats will impeach him. They are laying the groundwork for it right now with the constant barrage of charges about the emoluments clause. I do not believe those are legitimate charges. I don't think he's in violation of the emoluments clause, but I believe surely the day follows night that if they get the majority, they will bring an article of impeachment against him on the emoluments clause. Indeed, a Democratic congressman from Maryland already filed. It won't go anywhere in a Republican majority mm-hmm. house, but if they get, that's what I said. And so the headline was a little bit of a click grab, but that is, I believe it to be true. And in fact, the last chapter of the new book, The Fourth Way, is all about impeachment, because I think Democrats are going to keep up this constant barrage of assaults on Donald Trump. They will never let up. And is part of, uh, here's my theory on, I, I want to get your get your take. I think that the, Democrats know that their 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 claim of uh, him being a delegitimate uh, or illegitimate president, uh, whether it was uh, you know he didn't win the popular vote, uh, there might have been some vote uh, recounts, all this uh, Russia, you name it, that all have been false up to this point. I might add, I think it's really not for those Rust Belt swing voters. It's just a base activation move. It's to keep the base enthralled and then making, you know, become, staying small donors. Is, do you agree with that take or what's, what's your perspective? Well, I, I, you're breaking up a little bit on me. It might be my phone, John, but I, I gather you're talking about the Rust Belt voters and where they're going to go with them. There is an attempt to delegitimize Donald Trump. It's ongoing. It, it's relentless. And it began immediately after the election with the assertion of uh, Russian interference, which is true, right? Now, there's no doubt about it. Russia was mucking around in our stuff. I called during the campaign WikiLeaks with Russia leaks. I don't think it affected the result. I don't think it, it swung enough voters in, in Pennsylvania or Michigan to make a difference. So I used the constitutional majority. I don't think he won the popular vote. I don't think there was massive vote fraud. But all of these stories are designed to weaken him politically. And I, I think people have to, got to be, especially Trump supporters, have got to be aware that their guy is under a continual assault and that if he makes any mistakes at all, they will be amplified. In many respects, it's kind of like Nixon. Uh, ever since Nixon got his, Democrats hated Nixon, so that when he lost in 1960, he didn't go away, or he lost in 62, and he didn't go away, they, they stayed mad at him. And when he won in 68, 
um, they were after him immediately. Uh, the war became his, not Johnson's. And they stood by, and as he said to David Frost after the resignation and, and the return to California, I gave them a sword, meaning he gave them a sword with Watergate. Donald Trump has to be careful not to give Democrats swords. And he doesn't seem to be very careful about that right now. He's given them lots of swords. Yeah. What, what do you think Trump's relation, longer-term relationship with the media is like? Yeah. It's, it's fascinating, Hugh. It feel, I feel like the media has now become the rebuttal to anything the Trump administration says. Uh, the, the media doesn't know what to do. I've, I've said it a few times, John. If the mainstream media had a concussion protocol like the NFL, we'd all be in it. We'd <laughs> all be uh, on the sidelines because the shock of November 8th was so great. And I've said it many times to my friends at NBC. I'm pretty sure I was one of the few, if not the only person at, at 30 Rock to vote for Donald Trump. But everybody, whether they voted for him or didn't, was surprised by the result. I thought I was going home at 10 o'clock that night. Didn't go home until 2.30 uh, after the president had won and been declared. And I got back to my hotel in time to see him speak. And everybody was surprised. And I tell folks, uh, any member of the media who tells you they saw it coming is lying, because I can't find a single storyline anywhere anywhere. I've gone back and Googled it. There are a few blogs. There are a few individual idiosyncratic people who predicted, a few academics who predicted it. But no major media person said Trump was going to win. None. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the the shock of that, everybody being wrong. Republicans didn't think he was going to win. Democrats didn't think he was going to win. Media, That's still reverberating in the media, and they are hair trigger ready to fight with him. And he likes to fight with them. In fact, they are the opposition party. Right. He's he's minimizing the Democrats. He doesn't really care what Chuck Schumer says or Nancy Pelosi. He wants to fight with the media and his his supporters. And I am among them. Don't mind that he does. It's interesting. Is is he setting himself up to be a victim in the sense of uh, uh, when the media overreaches that he can say, see, I told you this is not a fair. This is not fair. It sure played out that way when Zeke Miller, who's a friend of mine, I know Zeke, he's been on my show. When Zeke tweeted out that the Martin Luther King bust was removed from the Oval Office, it was a mistake. We all make mistakes, and I don't hold it against him. We all make mistakes. You just got to own them when you make a mistake in our business. But when he did that, it gave President Trump a very big hammer. And Sean Spicer, who's a friend of mine, swung that hammer a lot. When they make a mistake about Trump, he is not going to forgive them, nor should he. Uh, he's going to hit him with that hammer again and again and again and, and Zeke Miller was the first example. If people report about Donald Trump, they better be right. Uh, like that Russian dossier that was made up, mm-hmm. that BuzzFeed let, uh, that was that was garbage. Right. I know Ben, and that was just garbage. It it should not have been given to him by uh, whoever put it in his file. It was bad intel. I used to work in that business, and that was bad intel. It should never have been given to him. It should never have been leaked, and it should never have been published. So Donald Trump is walking around in his head with two absolute gold uh, uh, exhibits in the case against the media, the Martin Luther King bust and the Russian dossier. Every time they make another one, he is going to make sure that it's driven into the public consciousness. And so in the fourth way, the last chapter is about impeachment in the fourth way, chapter mm-hmm. five. He's built, He knows what's coming if they ever get the majority, and he's building a defense against it at the same time. He's very smart in this regard. Yeah. Uh, I got two more questions for you, Hugh. Uh, First of all, Trump, all, all the women that were protesting uh, Donald Trump, uh, um, it seemed if I could pull out a theme other than they're angry that 
Hillary Clinton didn't win. Uh, it it was more really about Planned Parenthood and Trump defunding Planned Parenthood. What do you think that looks like? Uh, you're breaking up on me there, John. I didn't hear that last part. Uh, something about Hillary. Oh yeah, uh, I was I was saying that uh, that it it uh, the the women's march seemed to be about oh. uh, uh, you know that they didn't they don't like Hillary. I mean they don't like Trump and they're angry that Hillary didn't win. But uh, it looks like Trump is picking a, a, a fight you know, with Planned Parenthood and defunding that, what does that end up looking like and how politically does that play out? It's a big deal. I was, I was in Washington. I'm in Washington now. I was in Washington for the Women's March. Half a million women on the mall is a historic event. And I mean, there were lots of men there as well, but the Women's March is what it's known as. And it will be known as that forever. It's like the 1963 March, like the mobilization against the war. Uh, talking with my, my guy, Gary, who's driving me around today about that's a big deal. People need to realize it's a big deal. It's the beginning of the Democratic Tea Party, and we shouldn't minimize it in the way that Democrats minimized the Tea Party in, in the early part of 2009 and 2010. They blew it off as you know unhappy people and disgruntled losers. No, it wasn't. It was actually the formation of a grassroots third party then took over the Republican Party. Well, the Women's March consisted of a lot of people who do not normally do that. Not, I mean, I people came and stayed in my house, or my friends from California came to the march, and they, they wanted to be a part of it. Yet that activism lives on. It is a very significant momentum builder for the Democrats. Luckily, all the Democrats went down to David Brock's retreat. They blew it off. They didn't pay any attention to it. But now they're scrambling to explain why they weren't there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, last question. Looks like we're going to start to see a Supreme Court fight on our hands as Trump announces his nominee. What do you think that looks like? And does Trump's nominee get easily confirmed or is it going to be a battle? Uh, He will be confirmed. I've talked to John Cornyn and John Thune, number two and number three in the House, in the Senate leadership. I haven't talked to Leader McConnell yet. And they both flatly say they will be confirmed. They'll either be confirmed with 60 plus votes. And no filibuster, or if Democrats attempt to filibuster, we will point out that the Reid rule provides for the confirmation of everyone with 51 votes. And they'll say, no, 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 we didn't change the rule. And the point is, and I explained this in the fourth way, John, at great length, because Democrats cannot be allowed to obscure this. The Reid rule isn't about who gets confirmed. It's about who, what's it take to change the rules of the Senate. And Harry Reid will rule the day, will regret the day that he broke the filibuster He broke it forever, and Donald Trump gets whomever he sends up, whether it's Judge Gorsuch or Judge Pryor. I think it's probably going to be Gorsuch or Judge Hardiman. They're all good. Whoever he sends up is going to get confirmed, and it might take an extra week or two, but it's going to get done. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, very last question. I promise we'll let you go, Hugh. Uh, I don't normally do this, but the Democrats, to me, are in a world of hurt. Uh, They still have no economic message. Uh, They're still trying to get their hands around Donald Trump and kind of what that means. What what would your advice be to Democrats if they wanted to take back the White House or win in the midterms? What do they have to do? Uh, I, I put that in the fourth way as well because they'll never believe me. I wrote the whole <laughs> book between for Hillary because they'll never believe me what to write. And so it's very obvious to me. They should have made Tim Ryan their, their uh, House leader. I know Tim went to my high school. He's a good, solid center-left Democrat union guy. Who, who speaks the language of the middle class and, and blue-collar America. Or they could put forward someone like Seth Moulton, who's a Democrat Marine, combat veteran from Massachusetts, young. Both these guys are young. They're not you know, septuagenarian, octogenarian leaders of the House and the Senate. 
Right now, the, the Democratic leadership is very old, very liberal, very coastal. So what they need is young, non-big city people uh, to lead their party back and reconnect them with, with working people. Right now, people driving around Los Angeles are listening. The Democratic Party doesn't represent them unless they agree 100 percent with Nancy Pelosi. She rules with an iron fist, and it's a, it's a pretty liberal fist. Yeah, that's a tall order. I, I just don't think she's going to give that yet that power up. Uh, one thing I've learned today from our, our interview, Hugh, is that everyone needs to go by the fourth way. Your latest oh, book. Everyone <laughs> does. Thank you so much for spending time with us, Hugh. Uh, Hugh Hewitt, uh, uh, we'll, we'll catch you on TV. Thank you, John. And, and, and hello to everyone at AM640, my old dick. I appreciate very much talking to you. Absolutely. Thanks, Hugh. That was Hugh Hewitt. Fantastic. Uh, and, a, and a KFI veteran. Our, our last topic of the day uh, is, on a bit lighter note, the, you know, there's been a lot of inauguration coverage, but this particular news item has not been covered, I don't think, uh, because it's quite amazing. Um, George W. Bush, of course, attended the inauguration. As many of you know, it began to rain at the inauguration. And uh, <laughs> he got in a fight uh, with his poncho, it appears like. Uh, see if I could lean over. Uh, uh, you can. <laughs> he ends up wearing it on his head. Uh, at one point, it's like smashed in his face. And the picture was great. But what was even better were the Twitter comments. So I'm just going to read you a few of these. Uh, Rachel Leishman says, uh, Never thought that in 2017, I'd say that George W. Bush was my spirit animal. And yet, here we are. <laughs> my spirit animal. Uh, the other one from Julio Ramirez uh, said, meanwhile, in row two, George W. Bush got confused by a disposable raincoat. <laughs> yes, he did. Another one is uh, from Menno Swart. Poncho one, Bush zero. A <laughs> uh, couple more here. Uh, uh, Kashana... Uh, said, some of us are sad today, but others had a great time playing peekaboo with a plastic sheet. Um, another one uh, <laughs> is uh, George uh, by BZK, uh, George Bush, George W. Bush being George W. Bush. <laughs> oh, man, that was great. Uh, well, we've covered a lot today. Uh Next week, I'm sure there will be plenty to talk about. It was so great to hear from Steve Moore and Hugh Hewitt. Thanks again for joining us on the Thomas Guide. Next week, we got great guests. One of them we can tease now is uh, Fox 11 anchor Lauren Savant, a friend of ours, friend of the shows. She's on Fox News' Red Eye. Um, she's hilarious. And a political expert, and of course, we're going to talk a little pop culture because she is an anchor here in Los Angeles. Uh, that and more. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of The Thomas Guide. Uh, you can tweet us, talk to us on Facebook Live, uh, or send us a note. we love to hear back from you, and uh, we'll catch you next Thursday. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Thomas Guide with John Thomas. We hope you've enjoyed the ride. Join us Thursdays at 1 on Facebook Live.
Tweet John at The Thomas Guide. Find us on iTunes and subscribe. Or you can go to KFI. Keyword, The Thomas Guide.